You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 91. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's guest on the show is Brad Brooks, who is the Idaho Deputy Regional Director at the Wilderness Society. Brad and his colleagues at the Wilderness Society recently launched a campaign aimed at preventing the takeover of our public lands. You can check out the website for this new campaign called Our Wild at ourwild.wilderness.org. But what are public lands and why are they so important? We'll start today's conversation by asking this essential question. We're joined today by occasional co-host Chris Wilson from Building a Greener Idaho, a local show that airs on community radio here in Idaho's Treasure Valley. Let's jump in. Well, hi, I'm Chris Wilson. I'm a co-host of the Radio Boise program, Building a Greener Idaho. We're a weekly community affairs program, and we bring you news and information about um, the people and policies and issues that are helping keep Idaho green or make it greener. Um, we have had Cale Becker on the show in the past discussing um, wilderness and public lands um, privatization issues, and we're interested in the, the topic of public lands and what the Wilderness Society um, does to protect them. Uh, and I'm Brad Brooks. I am the deputy director for the Idaho Office of the Wilderness Society. Uh, I also have a company called Argali that does, uh, we, well, we do a variety of things, but we do hunting, conservation, film work, uh, provide advice to hunters that want to hunt in the backcountry. Uh, I have been with the Wilderness Society for about 10 years and growing up in Idaho, working on public lands policy issues. I've worked on number of wilderness bills and other federal land policy issues and i also run our public lands takeover campaign uh, across the country for the wilderness society which we'll talk a little bit more about here in a second brad you obviously have a passion for wilderness and wilderness preservation where did this come from and and, and how did you uh end up becoming involved with the wilderness society uh, i i would say it was accidental for sure. Uh, I went to I went to my undergraduate at a small little school here in Idaho called the College of Idaho. And when I was in school, I was actually went as a computer science major. And <clears throat> I had this, uh, had a, uh, as we all do, sort of have these moments in life that sort of change our, our compass and our direction. And I had a professor there uh, one summer. I was looking for jobs. And I was asking her about were there any you know wilderness internships that she knew of or, or internships where I could spend the summer outside in the, in the wild wild country. And she thought about it for a second, and then she she looked at me and said, "Why are you a computer science major um, if you're interested in being outside for the summer? Shouldn't you do something else with your life?" Uh, and I couldn't disagree with her, and uh, that really did that one conversation changed my focus. And ended up getting more into policy and economics. Got a degree in environmental economics, and after working for Forest Service uh, a little bit, decided I want I was I wanted to do conservation work. Uh, I always say I never really felt like I had a choice in the matter. I'm a passionate person. Uh, I care a lot about public lands in particular, and um, whether or not I was working for the Wilderness Society, I would be heavily involved in in public lands issues and. Um, about 10 years ago, I ended up landed with Wilderness Society 
and have been there, been here ever since. What makes Idaho special, you know, from a public lands perspective? I think Idaho, well, I don't want to oversell it uh, because <laughs> Idaho is like it was one of the best kept secrets in, in the West. You know, I've traveled a lot around the world. I've, I've been to a lot of places, you know, as an avid, you know, climber hunter. I, I go to a lot of different places to, to recreate. And <clears throat> there are a lot of beautiful places in the world. There's a lot of beautiful places in the West. Idaho has a lot of public land. You know, we have a lot of wild public land. We have uh, we have the second most wilderness in the lower 48 now with the passage of the Boulder White Clouds Wilderness. So we have that. We have more roadless land than any other state in the lower 48. Um, so there's a lot of wild public land. And what that really means is we have a lot of places you can go play, whether or not you like to mountain bike, hike, ride a motorcycle, fish, hunt. <clears throat> you can do it all here. And those of us who live here know that. Um, I was just telling you, I just got done with a mountain bike ride at lunch. It's one of the beauties of living here. You can go play around in the foothills for uh, above Boise for an hour, be back at work. So it's if if you are into quality of life, Idaho has it. Um, but Idaho's not alone in that regard. I think there are a lot of states in the West that have similar opportunities. We just don't have the same number of people that other states have. Uh, and if you're a, a recluse like me, I think that's that's nice. Chris, as as a longtime Idaho resident as well, and someone who also appreciates you know getting out into the outdoors, I mean, do uh, you have anything to add there as far as you know what makes this state special and why our public lands are so important? Well, I mean, Brad touched on the the roadless lands um, and just the sheer amount of public lands available in Idaho, but also the proximity to. Any town you live in is really just a small bubble surrounded by wildlands in Idaho. And and the term wilderness in Idaho, you know, it means one thing politically and land management-wise, but really you take a step out the city limits anywhere in Idaho and you're essentially in wilderness. There's very few ag lands or lands that are used or managed to the extent that they don't feel pretty wild when you go out there and experience them. So uh, Idaho is very unique in that regard. And, you know, I think from a personal standpoint, I share the sentiment that it's nice to be able to get out there quickly when you need to clear your head. And the song that always comes up in my mind is Your Own Private Idaho by the B-52s. I mean, 10 minutes from downtown Boise and you're in your own private Idaho. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Awesome. So uh, before we get too deep into this issue related to public lands um, and this campaign that, that you're helping run, Brad, with the Wilderness Society, um, maybe you can just define public lands for us. Yeah. So <clears throat> let me just back up. Let me give a, like, a really poor and brief history lesson, if you don't mind, real quick. So if you think about it, um, where America came from, we came from England, right? So feudal Europe where you had a system of lands that was was really divided by the land, what we call the landed gentry. So you were, you were either born into royalty or you were not. And if you were fortunate enough to be a part of the you know, handful of, of affluent um, <clears throat> royal families, you had access to land. They called them you know, the king's deer. And on those lands, you know, the kings and the landed gentry owned all of the wildlife, they owned all the resources. Um, we come to America, and you think about America being founded in reaction to where we came from. And in particular, when we were settling the West, there was this little-known president, Teddy Roosevelt, who uh, had this audacious idea when he was president that, especially after what he watched and, and given his interest, which, you know, Teddy Roosevelt was a phenomenal individual. He 
travel all over the world essentially just killing every animal he could um, and putting it on his wall. And when he, you know, during that process, what he realized was that what made America great, frankly, to use a popular term right now, was that it was different than all these other places he had been, that it wasn't a system of haves and haves nots There was opportunity for everybody. And in particular in the West, we were starting to give a lot of land to railroad companies, um, timber companies, mining companies, so they could develop the resources, create jobs, and just sort of build society out West, which isn't necessarily bad. But what he was worried about was that we were going to create a system, a land system that was exactly like where we came from, where a few individuals, companies would control all the resources. And by that, they would essentially control society. And he didn't want to see that happen here. And in a story that I highly recommend people do a little bit more research on called the story of the Midnight Forest, in one night he created 200, roughly 230 million acres of, of what we now know as Forest Service lands. And he also created the Park Service, Yellowstone, Yosemite. Um, and today we have about 640 million acres of what we call public lands that are managed by the Bureau of Land Management, the Forest Service, Fish and Wildlife Service, National Park Service. And uh, just to be clear, public lands are owned by you, me, and everybody else in this country. Um, they are managed in trust by the federal government. I think a lot of people often confuse the term, uh, confuse public lands as federal lands. They are public lands managed by the federal government. I think it's a really important distinction um, because just just to be clear, what that means is we own them and we we decide what happens to them. We the public. Um, it's not up to any individual. No matter how powerful they may think, to to decide what happens to them. There is a lot of confusion right now about um, the origins of our public mm -hmm. land system um, <clears throat> here in the U.S. Um, and you know we're lucky here in Idaho that we live in a state that is um, over 60% publicly owned land. But you know, for I grew up in Northeast in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. which is you know, probably less than 1% publicly owned land, yeah. <laughs> a tiny, tiny fraction of what we have here in Idaho. And so there's not nearly as much awareness um, about the system and how it works. And I, Yeah, and on that note, I mean, I think, you know, I grew up here, and I have friends that I grew up with who, and I think this is fairly common across the U.S., like, you know, people might camp on public lands or go hike on public lands. They don't know that's public land. All they know is they, they don't have to ask permission to, to go do what they want to do. Um, but I think most of America uh, is not aware that they own that land, and that's the reason they don't have to ask somebody permission to go on that land. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and it is also something that is it's is really unique um, to our yeah. country and to where we live. Sure. And you know, I've experienced you know uh, uh, folks who come to the U.S. traveling who live in in other parts of the world, and they're totally blown away by the fact that you know you can just drive out into the wilderness and just throw a tent down wherever you want. And you can just it stay is, there for up to two weeks. I mean, there is that, no, there's nothing else like in the yeah. world. There isn't. Um, so it is what it is literally what defines, especially the Western United States. It is what defines us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've actually had friends say that they feel like a king due to the public lands in the Western United States, and they're hearkening back to this feudal time when it was just unobtainable to the common man. And now you're just Joe, somebody, and you own millions. Help you co-own millions of acres of land in, in Idaho. It's great. Right. Yep, mm -hmm. tremendous asset. So um, let's jump into this this issue surrounding public mm -hmm. lands. This is not a totally new issue. The concept of folks wanting to uh, transfer these public lands into uh, either state uh, mm -hmm. management or to privatize them outright. 
Um, I mean, that's not anything new, but there has been this renewed interest in uh, uh, developing campaigns like this. First of all, let me just just to just to make make sure we're clear. You know, the the there is a a movement that's been happening for the last few years by uh, individuals and political organizations to uh, take public lands and give them to state, private, and other uh, entities, I should say. Um, that movement is uh, very well-funded, politically savvy, um, and, uh, and I think it's spreading, and we're seeing it spread across the country right now. What motivates that interest, I can only you know speculate about. But most of it is, I, I think there are some factual, there's some factual information out there, which is that there are folks that just, just strictly do not believe in the idea of public lands for whatever reason. <clears throat> um, most of them are not in living in the West because if they lived out here, I just can't fathom and understand if you hunt or hike or fish or like to ride your bike, <laughs> you couldn't like public lands. Um, that movement... Um, which I will say, yes, this is not the first time we've seen it, um, but it's different than other times and the other movements that we've seen. It wasn't that long ago we had what was called the Sagebrush Rebellion. Um, you know, every decade or two, you you tend to see some group of of uh, sort of despondent folks, uh, individuals who are frustrated with with federal government. Um, you know, start to organize and uh, for whatever reason and call for taking public lands away from um, public ownership and out of, out of federal management. This is different, though, and I, I'll tell you, just, you know, I had to find religion on this issue personally. I didn't take it seriously for a long time, mostly because, uh, you know, people get angry all the time about whatever. You know, frustrations with the federal government run long and deep in this country and come from every angle in every part of the country. But um, what really made me um, rethink whether or not this was worth paying attention to was when I started seeing elected officials who had always considered this issue of privatizing public lands as toxic to their interests, moderate elected officials from, from both parties, frankly, um, who started you know, telling me that it was a conversation we needed to start having about whether or not we should you know, look at privatizing public lands or giving them to states. And when I heard those individuals start talking about openly, it, it, what it told me was that they were feeling a safe political space to talk about it in a way that they have never felt before. Um, now, if you remember here in Idaho, um, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to make this a, a political issue one way or another, but this is just a fact. Our current governor, Governor Otter, when he was in the House of Representatives, um, suggested that we, we dispose of some public land to help pay for Hurricane Katrina and nearly lost his re-election bid because of that one that one issue. Um, so uh, unpopular um, with his base, and I think that's it's changed quite a bit. And if you just look at the way it's evolved across the country and the way it's being messaged, you know, people are not openly taught, the people pushing this are not talk about, talking about privatizing public lands, which we know is unpopular. Their sophisticated messaging suggests that we give or, quote, transfer lands to the states. And I think that's based on a lot of opinion, public research polling um, that is capitalizing on frustration that you see across the country with um, the, the term federal government, which in case you weren't aware, is not a not a popular term these days. Um, 
and trying to brand public lands as an example of what you might call um, a federal government overreach instead of what we know them as as these you know public resources that we all use and enjoy um, that are used for managed for multiple uses including timber mining and recreation together that has gained some traction because it's not just simply talking about the privatization of public lands it is really focused on this nuanced message of let's just give them to the states transferring to states sounds much more appealing because it sounds like they're going to stay public um, one really important fact to remember in this conversation is that state lands in the West are not public, period. There's no debate about that. You can ask any state government whether or not their lands are, are quote, public lands, and they will tell you, no. Most state lands in the West, uh, while you can access them uh, occasionally, it just depends, are, are constitutionally mandated to be, to be managed for the maximum economic return. Um, Again, nothing wrong with that. That's just the difference between public lands and state lands. You have, you and I as members of the public have no right to use state lands. We're allowed to access them so long as it doesn't interfere with the constitutional mandate of state lands. And the way that materializes it, so in you know states like Wyoming, uh, Montana, what you see is states leasing uh, state land for exclusive hunting rights, for hunting clubs, there's a proposal in Southeast Idaho right now from a, uh, I'm not even making this up, there's a hunting club that wants people to have a, um, woolen clothing is the only clothing you're allowed to wear. It's a driven hunt, similar, similar to what they used to do in, in feudal England. I'm, I mean, the irony is astounding. They want exclusive hunting, lease, hunting rights to state land and have a proposal right now um, to try and lease several thousand acres of land. And the reality is, too, is recreation doesn't pay what extractive uses do. So if you talk about maximizing, maximizing economic return, um, what that means is recreation is completely subservient to um, uses that pay more money. Um, so those quality of life benefits, the recreation values, um, get pushed under the rug and pushed aside. The other big, <clears throat> big flaw or the big concern and what I would say is uh, a savvy if I were running the campaign to try and privatize public lands, I would do exactly what they're doing. Frankly, it's savvy and it's smart, and I have to I have to give the folks credit behind it who are doing it. Um, by giving public lands to the state, <clears throat> what you're also doing is requiring you're putting a, a financial burden on states to manage those lands, and in particular, the firefighting costs alone in this country are astronomical. They're well over a billion dollars. And every time, every summer, our, our firefighting costs are going up every single year. Um, hotter, drier climate. Um, it's cost more money to protect homes. Um, Idaho is a great example um, on the fire debate because we have so much public lands. We have a lot of wildfire. Last year alone, the state of Idaho budgeted about $50 million to fight fire. In one fire, uh, the cost the state incurred. This is a, this is a fire that started on state and private land and spread up in the Clearwater country and spread to public land. In that one fire, I think the total costs were around 170 million dollars. Luckily for the state of Idaho, um, they didn't have to come up with another 120 million dollars. The uh, federal government picked up the tab for that overage, um, so it didn't end up costing the state a bunch more money. But you know, unless Unless states can find hundreds of millions of dollars just for wildfire costs, you know, basically there are two options to pay for that money. 
you can either raise taxes or you can start disposing of lands in order to come up with a more manageable chunk of ground that you can you can manage um, without worrying about people's homes burning down. And I can tell you in the West, uh, maybe outside of California and Oregon, raising taxes just strictly isn't going to happen to cover firefighting costs. So we know what will happen. And the folks who are pushing this effort know what will happen. So, Right, and what will happen is the states will be forced to sell off lands to essentially formally privatize it, right? Is that... I think it's highly likely. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. see any other option, frankly, right. unless, right. I mean, bankruptcy or sell land. Right. And I think, you know, in that situation, what are you going to do? As right. a state, I wouldn't blame the state. Right. You know, I don't want Idaho to go bankrupt, or I wouldn't want Colorado to go bankrupt either. Right. So you're basically saying that, you know, it's unpopular to say we're going to privatize these publicly owned lands, but it's a lot more popular to say let's just transfer federal lands to state hands um, without the public realizing that that changes the designation and they're no longer technically private, plus a percentage of those state-owned lands are undoubtedly going to have to be sold off to, to private ent- entities, right? Absolutely. It's a bait-and-switch. It's mm-hmm. a classic political sleight of hand. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I mean, and the other thing, too, to keep in mind is, is it's not like states in the West don't already sell state land. If you look at all the western states in the US, they've all, you know, each state its statehood was given a certain amount of of sections of land and it varies by state and that's the history behind that's a whole another discussion topic. But each state has a certain amount of land. Taken together, western states have sold off 31 million acres. That's about the size that's, that's a land mass about the size of Louisiana. Um, uh, states sell land every year. It varies by state. Uh, but some, for example, you know, uh, Idaho, Utah have a very uh, robust program to sell lands. It's discreet. Sometimes they take that money and re- reinvest it in other ways, but they have the complete discretion to do it. Most states have what is called a land, a land board or something similar, which is a handful of elected officials. Usually it's about five individuals who control the fate and make all decisions on state lands. Um, So the public has no say in what happens to state lands, um, no matter what state you live in. You you do not own those lands. They belong to the state, um, and they get to make the decisions for what happens to those lands. Unlike public lands, which we own, and only Congress can um, um, sell, trade, or dispose of. And occasionally they do do that with discrete parcels, um, but it's a very limited case-by-case basis. Mm-hmm. A, a couple of uh, nuanced policy questions came up for me in that um, discussion of the tactics here for the transfer of the state or the lands to the state control. Um, one is the state trust lands are those lands that were given to the states when the West was originally carved up um, per American uh, government regulations. And they're mandated to, to make the most money they can, and a lot of that goes to, to fund our school systems. Yeah. Um, is there a mechanism in place or being proposed with this legislation that uh, creates a separate holding entity at the state level that is that is intended to manage lands differently and more aligned with the way that our public lands are currently being managed, or is it, or is this strictly being funneled right into the same trust land system that our states currently operate? It, it varies by state. Um, that's a good question. It varies by state. And I haven't really seen I haven't seen a really uh, thorough, well thought out proposal about how it would actually work. Frankly, what I keep coming back to is, um, you know, what do you, what's the problem we're trying to fix here? 
like you know public lands the assumption that we need to take public lands out of public ownership tells me there's something broken that we're trying to fix now no doubt that there are you know schools are important to fund there's nothing wrong with state trust lands they provide a valuable service they 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 fund schools they fund um you know my not my alma mater but some of my family's alma mater up in university of idaho um Again, I just keep coming back to this question of, you know, if we're trying to fix a problem, then what is that problem exactly, um, and how is this going to address that problem? And so far, I have not heard a convincing argument based on facts um, that that sort of lays that case out very well. Yeah, fundamentally, why make this swap in the first place? Yeah, so, you know, if the premise is that public lands are broken and giving them to the states will solve solve this this will we'll fix the problem and what is the problem exactly if the problem is that there's too much access and recreation and people are too many people are using public lands giving them the state will not solve that problem if the problem is that we want to um you know use lands for for the benefit of a few people then yeah i would say that giving them the states would accomplish that objective um, it will make it a system of of haves and have nots it will restrict access there's no doubt about it um, and it will change, you know, the quality of life and the reason so many of us, you know, live in, in the West. And this is another kind of similar nuanced policy question, and maybe the details of this are not um, laid forth so far in the in the legislation, but um, this idea of the, the cost of firefighting, we are, as taxpayers, presumably currently paying our money to the federal government to cover that expense. What happens to that money? So is there a mechanism being proposed that that money would then flow to the state to backfill that need, or or is it right now just up in the air as to how that gets funded, the firefighting's cost specifically? I haven't seen a single state who wants public lands who has volunteered to take on that firefighting cost. Most states want the federal taxpayers, the taxpayers from Maine and New York, as well as California and Idaho, to continue to foot the bill for firefighting costs. They just want to control public lands, everything else. Mm-hmm. So um, you could, <laughs> I would argue, if I lived, you know, out east, that that's that's quite unfair. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, no, I don't think you're going to see a state step up and say, yeah, we'll cover the firefighting costs um, when we. Uh, if we were to assume control of these lands. So sort of implicit in this movement is this idea that the federal government will continue to pay those costs, the firefighting costs, or it just won't happen. There will be no firefighting. I think I've heard two, I mean, I guess just, I mean, to to paraphrase what I've heard is that, you know, one is that uh, we won't have fires because we'll be managing the lands properly, um, which, which, you know, frankly doesn't, there's no facts to back that up. Um, and the other, yeah, is that, well, we just want to manage the control of the management, but we still want the um, agencies, the federal agencies, to cover the firefighting costs. Mm-hmm. And this is a national level um, legislation, and the main voters would have a say in this decision. Is that correct? Well, <laughs> so there's two things we've seen. One thing, so the, there, there have been efforts, most of the efforts we've seen so far have been at the state level. So you see... A lot of these, there's been these copycat, we call copycat bills, pop up in state legislatures across the country. And there are some, um, there are some bills in Congress that are, that are what we would characterize as public lands takeover bills, bills aimed at, at chipping away at Teddy Roosevelt's legacy of public lands. What we have seen, um, it gets complicated here a little bit, but state legislatures have no authority over public lands. Um, there's a constitutionality issue there, right? Um, 
state government cannot trump federal federal government or federal law. And I'm not a lawyer, so I, but I'm a barroom lawyer, so <laughs> I, can, I can provide all the advice you need. Um, so the idea that what we have seen is there there is this organization called the American Legislative uh, Exchange Council, and and part of what they do is provide model bills for state legislators to introduce. We've seen same bills pop up across the West, and now we're starting to see it spread to the, the Midwest and the East. Those bills are, you know, we've seen resolutions demanding federal government give public lands to the states. We've seen joint resolutions, or they're comp, we call study compact bills that, were, that are setting up committees to study the, you know, how a state would take over public lands. None of those bills have any, have any can actually do anything. What they do, though, is, is put this issue in the public arena. They, you know, reporters are, are journalists are writing stories on it. We're talking about it right now. And they're, they're trying to publicly question this idea of whether or not we should even have public lands and make it part of the acceptable dialogue in the country. Setting the stage for national Setting the stage, exactly. And what it does, is it, like I said, it creates the political space for someone. Um, and there are a number of legislators um, who have introduced bills that are uh, attempting to take public lands away from the public, two that come to mind. Uh, one here in Idaho uh, from... Uh, one of our congressmen, and uh, one from Utah, uh, a gentleman named Rob Bishop. So, yeah, I think if Congress Congress can't, you know, Congress can do whatever it wants to. Uh, and if you ever go back there, they will remind you of that, that they have the, all the power. And, you know, they, they can actually do something on this matter. And we've had actually one, there was one bill that nearly cut a wildlife refuge in half um, just this past spring, um, the Vieques National Wildlife Refuge in Puerto Rico. It was the closest we've ever come that I'm aware of in, in the history of the U.S. Of, of seeing a wildlife refuge cut in half. And really, that was a result of, of public lands takeover efforts. It nearly passed. I mean, it was within a hair's breadth of passing. Um, but ultimately, we were able to, to defeat that. What is the Wilderness Society doing mm -hmm. um, to try to counteract the effect of these actions that are being taken? We're headquartered in Washington, D.C., so we have a strong presence in D.C., and we're committed to ensuring that uh, public lands remain public, frankly. So, you know, bills that come up um, that would threaten that, uh, we are there to try and make sure they, they don't get very far and hopefully uh, don't pass. Uh, I think the really the bulk of what we are trying to do right now is to try and help Americans remember what public lands are and why they should care about this issue and this debate. Um, I, the, the folks that want to see public lands privatized are really banking on Americans' complacency, frankly, and lack of interest in the issue. And that's as long as the complacency is out there, um, you know, it, it plays into their advantage. And so we have started, um, we have a website, uh, might, what we call microsite, uh, called our wild. It's a campaign to try and, uh, remind, uh, Americans why public lands are important, what they are and the, you know, why they should care about this issue. We have a few, a series of videos that we've, we've released a couple, um, and we're going to release a few more throughout the fall highlighting individuals and their personal stories about public lands and also just trying to give people information on the issue so um, and we also want to provide a resource for people so if they're interested in the issue they can dive deep and figure out what's going on 
Um, and that's the bulk of our work right now. Um, and then in each state where we have a presence in the West, which is most states, um, we are working to both help educate uh, the public and also make sure people have the facts on the issue and are not being just hearing um, from the folks that want to see public lands privatized. It's not just people of one particular political viewpoint that are going out and enjoying the time they spend recreating in these public lands. I mean, it's, it's, it's everybody. Everybody has access. And you are a hunter. Hunters really have this deep value for publicly owned lands, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's really difficult to find a way to get out there and hunt if all the land is privately owned. Are there hunters out there um, or groups that, you know, would maybe sort of fall on the conservative end of the political spectrum, um, but who value hunting and who are standing up for public lands? Yeah, I mean, this this really is a bipartisan issue. Public lands truly are bipartisan issue. Um, and I, I, I can't tell you there's nothing that makes me more proud as a, as a, as a hunter from Idaho when I see... Um, uh, groups and individuals uh, from all political stripes standing up against this issue, and you've seen that a lot. So, um, organizations that I would I would probably characterize as as you know you use your, your word conservative groups like the Safari Club, the National Wild Turkey Federation. Um, yeah, they are they are in vocal opposition to this issue. They've been very active on it. Um, sportsmen, I think sportsmen in general, we tend to be. Uh, you know, I'm a con tend to be conservationist, but also conservative in some ways. And um, this issue is, you know, I would say uh, across the board, uh, sportsmen are united against this. And if you look at who has done more work to fight back on this issue, this issue, look at the hunting industry, the uh, hunting, the, the gear companies, the frankly, even even the gun manufacturers are pushing back vocally and publicly against this, which you do not see very often. Most of those companies like to stay out of the political world. But this is such a bread-and-butter issue. I mean, this is so vital to so many businesses and so many people's passion. I mean, I, I just can't fathom as a kid growing up not having those experiences that I had, and I can't fathom not being able to give them to my daughter. And I think it, it's such a visceral thing for, for, for outdoors people, both men and women. Um, who like to, to hunt uh, and fish as well. Yeah, and I mean, that's really striking to me when you say that there are, um, you know, gear manufacturers and even uh, gun manufacturers out there that are actually standing up and expressing their opposition to um, these attempts to, to, you know, privatize mm -hmm. public lands. Um, because like you said, I mean, these are groups that are well known to take conservative stances on issues like this, right? Yeah, yeah, um, sure. So, I mean, I guess I guess my question to you is, like, you know, are you guys, I mean, at the Wilderness Society as a part of this um, campaign you guys are running um, called Our Wild, I mean, are you having success in sort of bringing all of these groups together, you know, sort of like having these conservative and also liberal perspectives, but folks and organizations that agree on this one issue and sort of bring them together as like one common voice? I, I think so, yeah. I mean, I, I certainly, you know, I think I'm, you know, we're here in Idaho and from where I sit in the, I've had the, the fortune, fortunate luck to be able to work with some of these hunting companies um, and other outside of my work with the Wilderness Society. And yeah, I, you know, we ran, earlier this year we did some work with 
um, the Wild Turkey Federation, the Idaho Deer Alliance, Idaho Chucker Foundation, and some others here in Idaho to run some some ads and do some media work together as a united front. I think that caught people's attention um, because these are groups that don't always necessarily see eye to eye on issues. But this one is a pretty universal issue, um, and you're seeing it, you know, across the board. You're seeing uh, organizations doesn't matter uh, how we feel about other issues. This one issue is a uniting issue for uh, groups and organizations across the country. And I think that's telling about where you know the, the fact that this is important to a lot of people. There's a, a couple of. Um topics you've discussed that make me wonder if you're, if you're employing, employing these in your uh, public lands takeover campaign. Um, and one is going back to this idea of Teddy Roosevelt seeing the need to create, to set aside these lands for the good of the people. I think that's how the Park Service motto goes, for, yeah. the, for the good of the people. Um, and you know, if you think about that in terms of creating an asset for uh, the public um, and and sort of being a mitigating effect against um, maybe income inequality or um, power uh, over over control over over aggregation of power and wealth essentially, which we've seen uh, frankly a lot of in our country in the last twenty years, um, rising income inequality and some backlash from Occupy Wall Street and th- that um, that topic is at our is at the forefront. But if you think of public land sort of as the last bastion of a, of a holdout against. Um, income inequality and um, and the public having a, a foothold in this huge asset. Are you trying to play that up at all in your campaign to, to, to resonate with the people, the voters? You know, we do. I, 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 you know, we always say that public lands are the great equalizer in this country, and I think that's what you're, what you're essentially saying. It's true. I mean, if you think about, you know, most of the drinking water in the United States comes off of public land. So clean drinking water is not something we often think about in the U.S. until we have a, a Flint, Michigan type incident happen and then it reminds us that or if you ever travel to you know uh well any third world country or latin america or central america you don't you do think about the water coming out of the tap in a way you don't hear and that's one of the values that public lands provide that is essentially a great equalizer these these public health benefits um and they also provide again it's opportunities for um folks that that you may have money or you may not have money you have when you go onto public lands you're the same you have the same rights you have the same access and absolutely um that is something we talk about and you know and folks in rural america get that mm-hmm. uh because you know most of the people in in the, especially in the western united states they're these are working class communities um and without public lands, they wouldn't be able to afford to pay for access. And we definitely do try and remind folks of uh, of that reality. But you know, it's not it's not something we have to do um, very often. Most people know that um, those are some of the values of, of public lands in the West. It's actually what I what I think is is people that are a little bit more disconnected from public lands, which is the majority of the population in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the folks I think that. Uh, uh, maybe maybe not don't know that they own, you know, Yosemite, Yellowstone, um, the Sawtooth, um, uh, the Rocky Mountains, uh, and and I think we're we're trying to educate everybody about what they have and what's at stake. 
Yeah. Another topic that um, caught my attention, you mentioned um, the outfitters and and the businesses that make their living um, do, in fact, to these public lands and and the fact that you can hunt and fish and and take groups out there and show them how to do it and enjoy it as well. Um, Do you, that that to me speaks to me from building a greener Idaho sense. We love to talk about the economics of having a green and healthy state um, uh, economically and environmentally and how those two overlap. So do you, are you putting forth any economic metrics of the value of, of public lands in, in your arguments as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually have, I'm of two minds on this issue. So let me just first say the outdoor recreation economy is $646 billion industry. It's bigger than the pharmaceutical industry. It's massive, right? That's important and people need to know that. And most of that is happening on public lands. Uh, and the outdoor industry is heavily is paying attention again they have a vested business interest in this issue i you know personally i <laughs> i you know there there part of me wants to uh feels like we shouldn't even have to make the economic argument there is a there is a you know why do we have to justify why do we have to justify everything in terms of dollars like i, I get it i have an mba i have an economics background and and I, I i totally get it it resonates with me it resonates with everybody else but What's wrong with just saying that public lands have value aside from, you know, whether or not they can earn $10 or a dollar. They have value to you and me and everybody that lives in these communities. They have value to the people that travel out here once a year to go see them. Anybody that comes out west and wants to see a mountainside um, that's not a, it's not fully developed, that has value. That has, that has qualitative value that's hard to put a dollar value on. And I... I kind of I get tired of this. It's, it's a reality, but I get really tired of this. Uh, we have to justify public lands in terms of, of dollars uh, because they're just, they're, it's, it's more valuable to us than just in terms of, like, how much money can it make me today? Yeah. And we tend to look at everything and how much money can it make me today as opposed to what are the long-term values of this. For example, how do you put a value on clean drinking water for all the communities in the West? How I think, much is that worth? I think you asked Nestle Company how yeah. much that's worth. <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt they know. But, you know, it's like we don't, we don't think about that. But, you know, if we had to have desalination plants across this country because we polluted our water system, yeah. we talk about billions and billions of dollars every year in clean water. But anyway, there, there are strong economic arguments to be make, made, and there are smart economists that have made those arguments. And those are important. But I also, I really want to encourage people to think about um, what other values do public lands provide and why those matter. Yes. And I think there's an opportunity to think about those things concurrently and start to, uh, frankly, change the way we think about money in our economy. Because the idea that uh, our public lands, our public health, and our environment are separate from our economy is is patently false. Like, we live on this earth. Our economy and our life depends upon this earth. So if we start to talk about those two things in tangent around issues, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think it can help retrain our culture to think about, to, to value these intangible things and do it in a way that we incorporate in our financial decisions as well. And I'm not saying the transition would be pretty or we should be putting a dollar sign on a sunset or anything like that, but sometimes... Um, Sometimes it helps bring people into the argument or the discussion that would otherwise, you know, maybe never visit a national forest and just not really care about the the beauty of the the woodpecker on the tree or whatever that is. Well, a good ex- yeah, no, totally, I, I completely agree. And right now, okay, here's another good example: is you know, I've got a lot of friends who are into hunting across the country, right? Now, if you are a a, a big game hunter, right now is like you, this is your favorite time of year because you wait all year for your one or two weeks of big game hunting. And there are so many people 
everything I see is how excited people are. And you know what? That's all happening on public lands. People wait an entire year. They, they, they dream about it. You know, they, 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 they wake up in the morning. They think about it. They plan. And, you know, what's that one week of time worth to me? What's it worth to the, the millions of hunters out there? I mean, that's just, just one subset mm-hmm. of the population. I mean, you... You couldn't pry that experience out of my my dead hands, frankly. I mean, it is worth everything, and I would, and that's the reason I do this work because I care about it, and I know there's a lot of people like me out there who care about it. Yeah. What else do you and the folks at the Wilderness Society sort of have planned for this campaign in the future um, to ensure that our public lands remain public? Um, and then, additionally, like, what can folks who are maybe listening to the show do to play a role in this issue? So we are, good question, <laughs> um, we're going to continue to do, so we're going to continue to try and build support for public lands, remind people why they care about them, uh, also try and, and drive people to take action. So one of the things you can do in our wild is take action to remind your elected officials um, uh, that you care about public lands and that you're paying attention to the way they vote on public lands because that's important. We need to make this issue uh, one that is is. Um, known to elected officials as something people care about. And so we're going to do as much as we can to do that. And in the meantime, we're also um, doubling down on our effort to make sure Congress doesn't do anything that um, would jeopardize our, you know, over 100-year public lands legacy. So I I would say, you know, I know it's cliche, but get a hold of your elected officials. Get a hold of your representatives and tell them why you care about public lands and let them know that, you know, you, you want to keep public lands public. It's, it's really that simple. Um, you don't need to do anything special. You don't have to have special connections. Phone calls matter. Um, a lot of people think that if you call your congressional office, they don't listen. They do listen. They keep track of the issue. There's a reason that there's somebody there asking you what your question is. Um, and the more people do that, the more it, it matters. Um, so I would say to folks listening, uh, please don't be complacent. Don't assume that just because we have public lands that they will always be there. Um, we're working very hard to make sure public lands stay public, but it takes all of us. There's only so much we can do um, as individuals, but together I think we can really hopefully kill this effort. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the show and sharing this perspective. Um, it's a great conversation. Yeah, mm-hmm. thanks, Matt. Yeah, appreciate it, Brad. Yeah, thanks. All right, that was our conversation with Brad Brooks from the Wilderness Society and Chris Wilson from Building a Greener Idaho. To be honest, I really didn't take these recent efforts to transfer public land seriously until I had the opportunity to talk with Brad. As someone who grew up in an area with very little public land, then moved to a state that is more than half publicly owned, I do not take this resource for granted. But it's clear that many people don't fully understand why our public land system is so valuable, or even understand what public land truly means. So clearly, there is a need to raise public awareness on this topic. So if you'd like to learn more about the Wilderness Society's public lands campaign called Our Wild, you can head on over to the show notes page for this episode, and we'll have links to the campaign's website and a few of the short video testimonials that they've put together. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC91. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky, along with Chris Wilson from Building a Greener Idaho. Our theme music is by The Humidors. The Humidors.